Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Who doesn't love folklore and fairy tales? Our imagination is ignited by the magical and the mystical. These beliefs have allowed our species to make sense of this sometimes confusing and difficult world. Superstition is born out of legend and folklore. Superstitious rituals give us a sense of control over the unknown, assuring us a positive outcome. So cross your fingers and knock on wood as we leap into the fantasy world of legend and lore. So do you believe in fairies, Harris? I definitely would like to. I love the idea of magical creatures inhabiting the forests and the glens of the countryside, just waiting to be summoned by a hapless human. Yes, gnomes, fairies, and leprechauns. These are some of the key figures in fairy tales and folklore. Yeah, and you know that I love gnomes, Walker. (laughs) I do. I have a few always out and about in the house, no matter the season. Not the garden variety, though, but rather those adorable, stuffed, long, beardy ones. (laughs) I really fell in love with them in Iceland and have since developed a wee addiction. Gnomes are an intrinsic part of Icelandic culture, are they not? Well, actually, it's elves that are most commonly believed. Oh, there we go. Yeah, they are referred to as the hidden people. And in fact, over 50% of Icelanders are thought to believe that they actually exist. But there are also trolls, ghosts, and other frightening and fanciful residents in Iceland, apparently. Well, it shouldn't surprise you then that many people, adults included, who, whether they admit it or not, do believe in fairies. Hmm. In fact, I read that a recent British survey of 1,602 people revealed that 44% of them had claimed to have seen fairies. Seen fairies? That is a lot of believers. (laughs) But the British aren't alone. Fairies are a part of the folkloric tradition of many cultures around the world, but they can have different characteristics. Sometimes fairies are naughty, troublemaking little things, Mm -hmm. and others are benevolent and helpful. But they're most commonly described as tiny, quick little flying creatures. Yes, but they aren't always described as having wings. Sometimes they're perceived as little flashes of light. Hmm. Fairies can even come in the form of small children or even adults, and they don't always have wings. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that would freak me out a little bit. (laughs) Just saying. I actually just finished a gothic historical novel named The Ghost Woods by C.J. Cook. And it highlighted a very nasty fairy-like creature set in the Scottish woodlands. But it was definitely more of the frightening and evil variety. Well, that sounds kind of intriguing, Harris. Uh Despite having the potential to be a little devilish, fairies are legendary for bringing good luck to the people they encounter, among other benefits. This might be why, in recent years, that there has been a trend to build fairy gardens and fairy doors. Yeah, those are so cute, aren't they? eh? Did you know that fairy folklore is alive and well in Newfoundland, too? Fairies there are best to be avoided, though, it's believed. They can be very naughty, very troublesome. There's even a well-known fairy ring, which is a circle of 13 old beech trees in Conception Bay North on the Avalon Peninsula. Oh, I would love to see that. Mm -hmm, I would imagine the belief of fairies cross the Atlantic to Newfoundland with Irish settlers, which brings me to the leprechaun. The leprechaun, a tricky little fellow and a bit of a scamp. Am I right? Yes, he is typically believed to be a tiny, mischievous, bearded man decked out in a coat and hat who is always guarding a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow. 
Now, it's thought that they're usually two to three feet tall, and they're just as symbolic, really, of Irish culture as a shamrock. Yeah, I think I would be taken aback by a mischievous, well-dressed man (laughs) of that stature. But as for the pot of gold, I'd love to come across one of those. Well, if you're lucky enough to catch a leprechaun, it's said that he will grant you three wishes, or he might offer you a gold coin in exchange for his freedom. Hmm. But beware, Harris, apparently it doesn't always end in riches. According to legend, people sometimes lose their mind trying to conjure up three wishes. And it's known, too, that these little folk have a knack for outsmarting those who catch them. Speaking of slippery characters in folklore, what about mermaids? They are featured quite often in children's books and from time to time in movies. Do you remember the movie Splash with Tom Hanks, Daryl Hannah, and the late great John Candy? I loved that movie. Yeah, it was a wonderful film. Daryl Hannah was iconic in a role as a mermaid who tried to assimilate into human culture. Now, I particularly loved this one scene where Hanks takes Hannah out for dinner and she's confused as to how to use the utensils. And while you have to really see it (laughs) to be able to appreciate how she eats lobster. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little different. Yes. Very hilarious. And of course, there is the hit Disney film, The Little Mermaid. These movies also have roots in human belief and folklore. Like fairies, people all over the world claim to have seen mermaids. So true. I have relatives who came over from the Ukraine over 100 years ago who claim to have seen mermaids during their journey over on the ship to North America. Are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. The generation since often dismiss these stories, but who knows, right? Absolutely. I think that's so very cool. Every culture seems to have their own version of a legendary creature. I personally sat at the edge of Scotland's Loch Ness hoping for a glimpse of the monster. Sadly, I was not gratified with their presence. And what about Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch? Did you know that Bigfoot hunters are still going strong? And in fact, there are reports of a Sasquatch near my cottage, and there's even a Sasquatch society at Trent University in Peterborough, Ontario. That is crazy. I know. I did not know that. I have seen some supposed Sasquatch footage. Who knows, right? I know. Not as many people, though, are as likely to believe in Bigfoot or Sasquatch as perhaps some other mythical creatures. But as Chrissy Elliott pointed out in her article, so why do people believe in Bigfoot anyways? People's beliefs often exist in the gray zone. For example, someone might say, well, you know, I haven't seen hard proof for myself, but I have a really good friend or a family (laughs) member or someone I trust who's seen Bigfoot. Or maybe they'll say, well, I don't believe in this stuff, but I did see Bigfoot one time. Mm. People are social thinkers and they might be afraid to admit that they believe in something that's a little bit outside the box. You also might think that belief in legendary creatures such as Bigfoot might be associated with perhaps a lower level of education, But that doesn't really appear to be the case. Apparently, Rod Stark, part of a research team at Baylor in the United States, was quoted as saying in the article, Monsters, Ghosts, and Gods, Why We Believe, that PhDs, like yourself, Walker, are as likely as high school dropouts to believe in Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, ghosts, and the like. I'm a believer. (laughs) (laughs) I know. 
Well, I think magical belief is common to all humans. Believing in mystical creatures and magical forces used to be a way for our ancestors to explain the unexplained in the world. Mm -hmm. This thinking is still evident today in common superstitions. Yeah, superstitions are the beliefs that certain events, behaviors, or things can bring us good or bad luck. Right, Mm -hmm. Walker? Mm -hmm. I certainly have a few of my own. Ooh, I know one of them that I've seen you use often, Harris. Knock on wood. You got it although I'm often knocking on the wood of my own head. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah, apparently this superstition dates back to medieval Europe. People in church would touch the wood believed to have been from the cross, believing it would provide them with good luck. It also may be rooted in the beliefs of the First Nations people who touched trees recently hit by lightning because they thought they were powerful. Wow, that's interesting. I actually never knew the roots of that saying. Mm-hmm. Or what about the seven years bad luck if you happen to have the misfortune of breaking a mirror? Rooted in ancient Greece and Rome, it is claimed that the roots of the superstition is buried in an old belief that a mirror is connected to our soul. Thus, breaking a mirror would have disastrous consequences. Yeah, I'm pretty careful about mirrors. Mirrors. Mm. There are other superstitions and magical beliefs about mirrors too, like they're thought to be portals to the supernatural. Yikes. Another common superstition is to consider walking under a ladder bad luck. The origins of this one is a bit murky though. One claim suggests that the ladder symbolizes the gallows and that by walking beneath you are tempting a similar fate. Yikes. Well, I'll be avoiding those ladders, but there aren't too many opportunities to stumble upon an open ladder on the street anymore. (laughs) The risk seems to be much less than it was portrayed (laughs) on almost every 70s series on television. So true. Now, do you know about this one? It's bad luck to open an umbrella in a house. Yes, I go crazy when someone opens an umbrella indoors. It's a very bad idea, although I'm not really sure why. I was going to say why. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) It's a superstition I take seriously, though. The origins may be in ancient Egypt when it may have been considered to cause offense to the sun god Ra. But more likely its origins are in Victorian times when the mechanism of the parasols and umbrellas was really quite forceful and could cause injury. Yeah, I've had my finger pinched a few times by umbrellas. Mm -hmm. They can be dangerous little things. So that makes sense. But what about tossing salt over your shoulder when you spill it? My kid heaves salt all over the kitchen with this one. Yeah, well, salt has a long history of being valued, not just for enhancing flavor, but for aiding in food preservation. But it was thought that it would have been the ability to purify the soul and ward off evil spirits. When you spill it, you're supposed to take a pinch and throw it over your left shoulder in order to drive away the evil spirits that you might have attracted. Well, my youngest has certainly kept our kitchen quite free of any nasty spirits with all his salt tossing. Superstitions are so interesting. I found a few unfamiliar ones too. For example, there's a Filipino superstition called papag, where people who attend a wake or a funeral should not go directly home out of fear that a bad spirit might follow them home. You need to get rid of the bad energy first. The term papag, uh, pagpag, I should say, means something similar to shaking out a carpet to get all the dust out. Hmm. And the Russians apparently believe that when a bird poos on you or something that belongs to you, good fortune is coming your way. Yeah, I've heard that. Now, what if a bird poops on your sandwich? Is that good luck, Walker? Not sure I want to hear <laughs> that story, Harris, but I'll tell you that a crow once... <laughs> A 
crow once <laughs> dropped its business on me when I was little. I was riding my bike and distinctly remember nothing good coming of it. I do remember I was wearing all white that day as well. Oh. I was going to play tennis. <laughs> oh, that sucks. Yeah, that's not good luck at all. <laughs> now, did you know that in India, it's considered unlucky to get your hair cut on a Tuesday? No, and I often get my hair cut on a Tuesday. That might have to change. <laughs> and of course, as children of the 70s, we all know that a rabbit's foot is associated with good luck. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be the left hind foot, which I didn't know, though I'm not sure why. Yeah, they sold different colored ones at every corner <laughs> shop when we were growing up, right? Although I think they were all fake. I had a fake white one that doubled as a keychain, but really a real rabbit's foot that totally grosses me out. And it's definitely not so lucky for the rabbit. Absolutely not. Have you heard of the superstition of saying rabbit, rabbit, or white rabbit, white rabbit on the first day of every month? Nope. Ah, well, I heard about this superstition last year from my sister-in-law. In Great Britain and North America, it's supposed to bring you good luck for the month. Rabbits are associated with good luck because they live underground, and therefore, way, way back, they were thought to communicate with the underworld. I do say I hate white rabbits at the campfire if the smoke is blowing in my direction. I wonder if it's related somehow? Really? Yeah. Have you never heard that before? No. Maybe a variation of some sort. <laughs> it works. I've never heard that. Try it. It works. Wow. Well, compared to rabbits, black cats seem to have drawn mm. the short straw in the realm of superstitions. What about the old adage, don't let a black cat cross your path? That's a pretty well-known one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I can remember a childhood friend of mine had an outdoor black cat, and they kept it indoors on Halloween night in order to avoid putting the cat at risk of getting hurt. Oh, poor kitty. I wonder why black cats have such a bad reputation. How did that all start? Well, there certainly is a long history of connecting black cats and cats in general with negativity. As Jackson Galaxy, the cat daddy, explains, in the grand scheme of things, we know very little about cats. And people tend to associate negativity with things they don't understand. And he gave the example, I don't get you, so I'm scared of you. Yeah, makes sense. I love that guy too. Exactly. Yeah. So black cats occur in 22 different breeds, he claims, and it can be viewed as a very evolved genetic mutation. They've managed to survive particularly well, and mainly because of their ability to camouflage themselves and to sort of hide into dark corners. Yeah. In Greek mythology, Hera turned her servant Galanthus into a black cat who went to serve Hecate, the goddess of witchcraft. Hence the connection with witches. In the 1600s, when witches were persecuted, black cats were often thought to be their familiar or magical assistants. Jackson Galaxy also points out that the black cat is typically presented with an arched back in many images associated with Halloween, which is intended to make the cat look scary, but in reality, a cat makes its pose when they are scared. Right. They do get such Mm -hmm. a bad rap. In Italy, for instance, if a black cat jumps into bed with a sick person... That means that person will die. I know. And I used to own a black cat, man, and used to sleep with me. So I'm, and I didn't (laughs) die. So that's clearly not true. And in Germany, if a black cat in front of you walks to the right, your future will be bright. But if they walk to the left, Uh things might not go so well. British sailors, however, consider it lucky to have a black cat on board, and the Scots consider it lucky to find one in your doorway. Mm. So there's all kinds of impressions of black cats. And of course, ancient Egyptian culture revered the cat and associated fertility with the black cat. 
Today, we have the very great pleasure of speaking with an ally of the Black Cat, Jennifer Stott, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Black Cat Rescue, a no-kill cat rescue organization located in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for joining us today at At Home and Abroad. Tell us a little bit, Jennifer, about Black Cat Rescue and perhaps how it came to be. I co-founded Black Cat Rescue in 2007 with my colleague, Samantha McDuffie. So I was working in human services, volunteering at some shelters on the side, and I found a cat on the street. Everywhere I was volunteering for at the time was full, so I brought her inside and ended up getting her spayed and vaccinated and finding her new home. And then once I did that, I was immediately addicted. Once you do one, you can just keep going. (laughs) And so I really just kind of repeated that model over and over again for uh, a little while until we realized that a new organization was forming. And so we incorporated, applied for nonprofit status with the IRS, uh, got the organization going from there. Yeah. So it was really a little kitten and all of your work in rescue that inspired you to open up Black Cat Rescue. Absolutely. Yes. So was this little stray you found a black cat? Uh, Yes. And black cats have a reputation for not doing well in traditional shelter environments, partially because they don't show as well. A lot of times if people walk into a shelter and they're choosing an animal, they're looking for something about that animal to kind of connect with. And a lot of times that's a physical characteristic, whether it's beautiful eyes or a certain splotch on the face or things like that. Um, And a lot of solid black cats kind of just blend into the background. Um, There may be multiple in the shelter who all look fairly identical to one another. Um, And so a lot of times they just kind of get passed over and just don't get that second look because there's just nothing to really draw the person in. Right. They don't stand out in some way. Is that it? Yeah, exactly. So a big part of The way we we get them to show better is once we get them in foster homes, we have the opportunity to get really beautiful photographs that are harder to get in a shelter environment. And so I feel like we can really show more details of our cats' faces and give adopters the opportunity to make a little bit more of a connection online. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. I mean, everything is so visual these days and so much is done online that those photographs are probably pivotal to finding a an adopter family for your cats and your care. So you know today is our episode is on folklore and superstition. Do you think that that comes into play when people are considering adopting black cats? Oh absolutely. It's 2023 and some people are surprised that it's still going on, but some of this stuff is just so ingrained. I think there is a lot of association with cats and femininity and dogs and masculinity. Mm -hmm. The association between black cats and witches is obviously uh, something that's in a lot of people's minds. They're sort of maligned in that way. And for me, that was actually a big part of what drew me to them. I'm just such a sucker for the underdog. And black cats are totally the underdog of the cat rescue world. The undercat. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) I am a sucker for the undercat. So the fact that they need a little extra help and they're so misunderstood just has always really spoken to me. Absolutely. I'm also a big fan of, of the undercat as well. So we're on the same page there, Jennifer. So with superstition in mind, are you busier in Halloween season? There, I mean, so much merchandise still 
features those black cat images, don't they? Yes. So um, our approach is to own it in a positive way. So for us, um, we have an annual local event in October. We do quite a bit of online fundraising in October. It's a moment during the year that people are looking at us. And so we try to take advantage of that um, to help as many black cats as we can. And so we don't shy away from that kind of Halloween imagery. We we really lean into it. I think that makes sense. Really embrace it. Mm-hmm. And make it a positive thing. Exactly. Take the stigma and the and maybe the fear out of it and make it a positive. I love that. Thank you. So Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about black cats? Um, I personally have a little tortoiseshell, but she's really, really dark and she's feisty. Do black cats have personality traits which are different from other feline counterparts? Personally, I would say no. Um, I have been working with black cats for over a decade. I've seen every conceivable personality type, a a wide range of behaviors exhibited. I know that there are popular ideas that orange cats are the friendliest and tortoiseshells are the feistiest. It's not lost on me that the vast majority of orange cats are male and the vast majority of tortoiseshell cats are female. Mm -hmm. Um, And that may come down to an issue of female cats being a little bit more feisty than male cats. But for black cats, there's no skewing with the gender. And personality-wise, they really range. Super shy, super friendly. We get them all. And all of our cats, well, I never say, I shouldn't say all, um, the vast majority of our cats, they're domestic, short hair, medium hair, long hair. They're not specific breeds. Um, so you can breed purposely specific traits like friendliness and things like that. Um, but since our cats are all just genetic mix of everything out there, um, I, I don't think that we have a specific personality type uh, attached to the color. Yeah. Can you share with us an experience that stands out about one of the cats that came into your care at your shelter? I would love to. So the most recent cat that really needed a lot of help comes to mind is Carly. Carly came to us at the end of September at about six months old. Mm -hmm. She was rescued from a, a local apartment that had over 20 cats in it. These folks were doing their best to take care of these cats, but uh, the population in their home had had gotten beyond their control. So Carly was, when she was rescued, she was in decent shape um, for a hoarder situation. She wasn't underweight or terribly beat up. She did have quite a few nicks on the top of her head, which made us think that she may have been fighting a little bit for food. But when Carly was rescued, the rescuer set her up in her garage with some food and litter. And um, while Carly was eating, she immediately started projectile vomiting and um, was aspirating out of her nose. She went to the emergency room uh, where it was discovered that she had a vascular anomaly. That was her final diagnosis. We went kind of around trying to figure out what was wrong with her. But basically, it was a congenital issue. She was born with part of a a vessel uh, across her esophagus that was creating kind of a pocket in her esophagus on one end. So while she was able to get food down in a certain position, uh, it was coming back up in a way that was causing her to aspirate on it. 
And so uh, we were told that cats with this condition usually die very young. Um, They are not able to get enough nutrients in. So they essentially starve to death or fail to grow. Carly got lucky in the sense that the vessel was only partially obstructing her esophagus. So she was able to get more nutrients down than the average cat. The extra challenge presented for her was that the normally this is um, dead tissue obstructing the esophagus. In Carly's case, it was a live vessel um, that was supplying blood flow to her um, front right limb. And so the surgery ended up being uh, more involved than we initially thought. They had to clamp off an artery, give her some time to see if other vessels picked up the blood flow for that area. And so Carly went into surgery knowing it was going to be a long day of surgery. I was sitting by the phone all day. They may have had to call me at certain points to decide if they should go forward or stop. Carly just sailed through every aspect of the surgery perfectly. Um, She had an awesome recovery. I should have started with more about Carly's amazing personality. Carly is just the happiest little ball of sunshine. Mm -hmm. Um, She's solid black, sleek little, petite little peanut. And she just never met a person she didn't love. She had to have have alcohol put under her nose during her exams to stop her from purring so loud um, so that we could, they could get (laughs) a read of her heartbeat. Um, She's just so happy to be here. So happy to be pet. And so This brings up um, the big decision involved in rescuing Carly. When we were presented with the medical care that Carly would need to have a normal life, uh, we were told that it would be upwards of $15,000. That's a lot for one cat. Wow. And so the factors involved were, one, her amazing personality. We knew that she had the spirit to get through this. We had to hold her upright and feed her for the uh, weeks leading up to the surgery and then hold her upright for 30 minutes while she digested. And so um, I ended up caring for her in my home. I got into this routine with her of like feeding, kind of like burping her and then like letting her fall asleep on my shoulder like a baby. It was like, how could we not save this baby? (laughs) She's so perfect and amazing. And and she's so young. And um, it also, the condition is not a chronic condition where it's going to be something that affects her her whole life. The surgery was to remove the obstruction and the obstruction is now removed uh, and it won't come back. So she has a clean bill of health. She recovered beautifully from the surgery and then she got adopted into a wonderful home with another friendly cat. So she has a big sister. Um, They've been incredibly communicative with us, sending us updates of how well she's adjusted and surprising to no one. She's adjusted beautifully. She's very, very happy. Her mom has told us that it's impossible not to be in a good mood when Carly's around just because that's how she is. And so she's been a really, really rewarding rescue for us. Wow, what a beautiful story. Such a feel-good story of uh, Carly the Little Champion. I was going to ask if if she had been adopted, but of course she's been adopted (laughs) with her spirit. What can you tell our listeners who might be interested in adopting or fostering one of your cats? What is the process? What can they expect? So for us, we're a small local operation. So if you are in the greater Boston area, The process involves uh, seeing one of our cats online where our cats are on all the major platforms, Adopt-A-Pet, Pet Pet Finder, 
If you see a cat that you're interested in, uh, we have a, a cat adoption profile that you fill out online, and then our adoption coordinator will reach out from there to see if you're a good fit. For fostering, it works uh, essentially the same way, except you don't pick out a cat in advance. You would contact us directly through our website, blackcatrescue.com, about fostering. And if you meet our eligibility requirements, then we will set you up with a foster cat in your home. Um, if you are not in the Boston area, I really, really suggest going to your local shelter and asking to see their black cats. They may not be at the front of the cages. Mm -hmm. They may not show you uh, right away, but ask, who else do you have in the back? Are there any black cats that have been here for a while that have been overlooked? You don't need to go through us to make a big difference for the black cats in your area. You may be in the best position to help that cat yourself. That's really wonderful information. I don't think I would have thought of that, actually. I thought that they would have all been up front, but um, that's a, a really fabulous suggestion. Now, there are a variety of ways people can support your organization, including some really adorable merchandise that you have available. Can you tell us how our listeners can contribute to Black Cat Rescue? Uh, yes. Um, so we are always in need of donations to help with medical. As I mentioned in Carly's story, we go really deep for a lot of our cats. So we we, we have uh, maybe fewer cats than other organizations in a year, but we really do do quite a bit of extensive medical. So um, direct donations through our website are incredibly helpful. Monthly donations make a huge difference in our ability to be able to know if we have the resources to take in a cat that needs us. And um if you can't donate to our fundraisers, it makes a difference if you follow us on social media or on you know, Facebook, Instagram. If you can share our posts and our fundraisers with others who can donate, if you can't donate yourself, that makes a huge difference for us. Well, that's, that's really great information. Thank you, Jennifer, for taking the time to speak with us today at At Home and Abroad. You can find Black Cat Rescue on Instagram and Facebook at At Black Cat Rescue or on the web at www.blackcatrescue.com. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope that we all will give the black cats in our lives a little more love. It just goes to show, though, that superstitions are still alive and well in today's society. Yeah, apparently one quarter of American adults say that they are superstitious. Mm. But what I found even more interesting was that in an article in Medical News Today, it claimed that younger people tend to be more superstitious than older adults. Mm -hmm. It stated that 70% of students in America rely on good luck charms to enhance their academic performance. Whoa, that is a very high number. Do you do you carry a good luck charm? Yeah, I actually have a lot of different like, good <laughs> really? luck charms. I do. Yeah. And each have their own significance and their own purpose. Oh, wow. I know, I'm right? much more general with mine. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm the business when it comes to good luck charms. How about you? Um, I used to have lucky ladybug underwear I used oh. to wear when I went on a plane. But once I forgot them and decided I didn't need them anymore. Okay. So I don't know if I ever told you this, but I have a tiny little urn with my father's ashes in it. And whenever I have to take an exam or I have to do something super scary, I grab this little tiny urn and pop it in my purse and it brings me strength. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and I imagine it brings you both strength and 
comfort. Yes. Well, along the lines of your lucky ladybug underwear, I used to have lucky monkey labor socks that I wore for all three of my children's births. I have no idea why they were lucky or even where they are now, but it's a good thing I don't need them because there are definitely no more babies in my future. Superstition is probably most prevalent in the entertainment industry. There are so many theater superstitions. Take, for example, a bad dress rehearsal. Is it good or bad? Good? Yes. (laughs) Bad is good. It is a good indicator that the show will be a hit. Now, should you give flowers to an actor before or after a performance? Definitely after. (laughs) Otherwise, it's viewed as bad luck. You're not supposed to be rewarded for a performance before it occurs. But how about this one, Walker? Ever heard of the tradition of giving the director a graveyard bouquet? No, I have not. It sounds a little creepy. It sounds totally creepy, (laughs) and I'd never heard of it either. When a production comes to a close, it's supposedly good luck to give the director flowers stolen from a graveyard, hence the name. It symbolizes the end or the death of the production. There might be some connection between the fact that historically actors struggle financially without the means to buy a gift Mm. like a bunch of flowers and that these stolen flowers were a way of thanking the director. Well, that is quite interesting, but still no no less creepy. I know. I don't think any of the directors I've worked with would appreciate that. And the last and perhaps the most famous of them all, break a leg. This is always said to a performer instead of good luck. I've always wondered about where this expression came from. Well, there are many different ideas about this superstition's origin, but one possibility is that it is connected with the stage curtains referred to as the legs. Perhaps breaking a leg may refer to crossing from backstage to the performing area. I love learning all of this. Many performers have their own superstitions that guide pre-performance rituals too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, take... Taylor Swift, for example, the number 13 is hugely important to her. She says, I was born on the 13th. I turned 13 on Friday the 13th. My first album went gold in 13 weeks. My first number one (laughs) song had a 13-second intro. Every time I've won an award, I've been seated in either the 13th seat, the 13th row, the 13th section, or row M, which is the 13th letter. The number 13 is clearly working for her. <laughs> I know. I think I'd if I had known this, I probably would have altered my life to be more 13 oriented. I know, right? <laughs> and Chris Martin of Coldplay always says there are about 18 things I have to do before I can go out to perform. Most of them are too ridiculous to repeat. 18? That's a lot. I know. Many celebrities have their own little luck rituals. Jennifer Aniston has a pre-flight ritual. She says, if I walk onto an airplane, I always have to go on with my right foot first and tap the outside of the plane. And Kim Kardashian does this as well. Her family and herself always touch their hair too when they hear an ambulance and they say a prayer for the person inside. I also say a little prayer for the person as well in the ambulance whenever I see one. Yeah, me too. You know about angel numbers, right? I do. Like 1111, 555, that kind of thing? Yes. Paris Hilton makes a wish whenever she experiences the number 1111. Right, 1111 is considered a magical number. November 11th was my father's birthday, so I also think of him and consider it a special moment when I notice that time. A very good day for a birthday. It's my sister's birthday too. Oh, wow. Pre-performance rituals could actually be even more important to elite athletes. 
British Psychological Society psychologist Stuart Weiss has claimed that there is evidence that performing luck-enhancing superstitions may actually improve performance in skills-based activities because there is a psychological benefit. It helps reduce the anxiety of the individual. For example, Michael Jordan always wore old North Carolina college shorts under his Chicago Bulls uniform for luck. And have you heard about Rafael Nadal and the importance he puts on his water bottle placement? No, I haven't. Well, he's got a very comprehensive system, Walker. He says, It's a way of placing myself in a match, ordering my surroundings to match the order I seek in my head. He puts two bottles down at his feet, in front of his chair, to his left, one neatly behind the other, diagonally aimed at the court. And this is just one of 19 rituals he performs before he competes. Again, that is a lot. It must be very stressful and anxiety causing for the athlete if these rituals mm. don't happen the way that they're expected to occur. Yeah, I imagine things can't go right every single time. Mm -hmm. Serena Williams, another tennis icon, is also very candid about the numerous pre-competition rituals she conducts. Serena Williams has stated, I have too many superstitious rituals and it's annoying. It's like I have to do it and if I don't, then I'll lose. And I'm not losing because I didn't play well. I lost because I didn't tie my shoe the right way. And it's totally ridiculous because I have to use the same shower. I have to use the same sandals. I have to travel with the same bags. That's a lot. That's a big burden, I think, to bear. Yeah, I can imagine it would be very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But what about all those high-pressure jobs, for instance, surgeons, pilots, or even people who trade massive amounts of money every day for a living? Mm -hmm. There can be a lot riding on a single decision, and that, I imagine, can be very stressful. Yeah. I imagine any little extra luck you can conjure, the better. Absolutely. Monica Mattis, in an article for the Huffington Post, said that according to one surgeon she spoke with, Superstitions are common among medical practitioners. Many surgeons gravitate towards particular music while working, avoid saying certain words during procedures, or writing things in a patient's chart in a particular order. Studies have shown that superstitions are more prevalent in professions and circumstances with higher degrees of uncertainty. Take, for example, my hubby. He carries my daughter's baby shoe in his pocket for good luck on the markets. And pilots too, as you can well imagine, they have their own superstitions. Some pilots talk to their planes as they go through pre-flight checks. I actually talk to my car if I'm embarking on a big journey. Oh. Yeah, strange. I just actually realized that. Uh, trying to conjole their planes into <laughs> an uneventful flight. And it's also very common for pilots to touch the nose of the plane for good luck. And did you know it's also good luck to fly over a rainbow? You might spot that pot of gold we were talking about. Wow. Well, this brings me to the people who might be the most superstitious of all. Can you guess who they are, Harris? Gamblers. Right, you are. <laughs> they have so many superstitions, but I'm sure each has their own personalized set as well. A very common casino superstition is to never cross your legs when placing a bet. It is thought to cross out any good luck. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And some also consider it unlucky to enter a casino through the front entrance, as you might bump into gamblers who have had a losing streak. The bad luck might then rub off on you. Ooh, and one of my favorite tunes says it all, Walker. <laughs> oh, what's that? Kenny Rogers. Should I sing it for you? No, I won't. Famously <laughs> saying in The Gambler, you never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. <laughs> Epic words to the wise, Harris. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your hosts, Harrison Walker. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. 
You can also say hi to us on Instagram and Facebook at at Harrison Walker. We would love to hear from you. Bye.